If Jesus is who you all think he is, are you really telling me that the only people who notice this are four riders in the first century? I mean, wouldn't you expect that if he's the rock you think he is, when you throw him into the pond, there'd be some ripples, wouldn't there? That's Detective J. Warner Wallace, and he's with us today asking some really penetrating questions. Thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. Your host is Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. John, we had a great conversation with Jim, J. Warner Wallace, who had some fascinating uh, perspectives about Christianity and why beliefs matter. He also described a unique investigative methodology as a homicide detective, uh, really concentrating on cold cases where there was no body. Think of the difficulty in prosecuting mm -hmm. that kind of crime. And he's applied those concepts that he learned in that field to the existence of Christ, something he called fuse and fallout, which are the events that lead up to the catastrophic uh, bomb, the ordeal that occurs, and then all the fallout that is around it. Again, very interesting concept mm -hmm. when you look at a guy from the first century and say, we're still talking about him today. Yeah. That's a pretty big uh, fallout, right? Mm -hmm. That we still talk about Jesus and his meaning to history. Mm. Jim, welcome back. Thanks for having me, I appreciate it. It was so good. I, I just love this area because there's so many good thoughts that you can give to a non-believer to just make them think. Um, that was what I expressed last time, uh, you know, when I was in college and I came to this conclusion, I better read the word of God. I mean, right. reading these business books, I'm preparing myself vocationally, but this is the most important book to read. Yeah. And I constantly will encounter people and this is the skeptic in me, right? So I didn't have any Christians in my life growing up that if you asked, and I still see this, if you ask people, why are you a Christian? The most popular answer I get is I was raised in the church. Somebody, my parents were believers. Somebody mm, raised me. That, that is the number one answer you'll get. The second most popular answer is, uh, well, I've had an experience that demonstrated for me that Christianity was true. A prayer was answered. I had a certain uh, experience after reading scripture. Yet we believe as Christians that those other experiences do not actually point to the truth. Huh. So what I want to say is that we have a, have a worldview that's grounded in an historical event. It's not grounded in the wisdom teaching of a prophet or the wisdom statements of an, an ancient sage. It's, of course, Jesus makes these statements, but it's grounded in the resurrection. If that didn't occur, none of this is true. Right. And that means we can test this in a way that other religious worldviews cannot test their claims. This is grounded in history. We ought to be able to say, yes, I was raised in the church, perhaps, or I've had an experience that demonstrates the truth, but I was able to test that experience against what I can examine and know is true evidentially, because we're in the one place where we could do that. And by the way, I've got grown kids, um, and I've, one of my sons will tell you that there was a season in which he was kind of wandering, but because he knew and had been raised this way that he knew it was evidentially true, there's only so far you're going to go. Correct. It's kind of that rubber band theology, right? If you go too far the rubber band and let go, it snaps, it hurts a little bit. If you go even further, it hurts even more. So if you can help your kids not stray too far right. because they know it's true and you can only do so much with what's true, well, that's where I think we can make a difference. Well, that, I love that very point. It's mm -hmm. evidence-based. It's history. There's uh, records both in the Scripture, outside of the Scripture, who Jesus was. That's right. And that kind of pulls us back. Uh, we have new viewers, new listeners today, Jim. So I want to recap a little bit on this idea of fuse and fallout. Mm -hmm. It's such a powerful concept. And for most of us who do not work as detectives, yeah. uh, it's helpful to hear how you apply what you learned in your vocation as a homicide detective 
to the truth claims of Christ. So give us that refresher on fuse and fallout. Sure. If we've got a case where we've got no evidence in the crime scene, we have to make the case a different way. And I typically will tell jurors that we've got every case occurs in a timeline. There's a time before the crime and a time after the crime. And on the day of the crime, if it was a murder, instead of she just ran off, let's say, or she just vanished, and she's out there somewhere living her life, well, then that was an explosive day. And that bomb was preceded by a fuse of tension that was rising until something Mm. happens bad. And then after that bomb explodes, you've got fallout and shrapnel all over the blast radius. Well, look, if you didn't have any information from the New Testament, if every New Testament, imagine this thought experiment where every New Testament had been successfully destroyed by some evil future regime. So I don't have a single manuscript or a single Bible. They're all been destroyed. It turns out from just the fuse and fallout of history, you can reconstruct in its entirety the story of Jesus. You could be saved with the information you would just get from the fuse and fallout so that even if every New Testament had been destroyed, this is the kind of impact that Jesus has. There's a reason why we call this the first century, even though, yeah, guess right. what? It's not the first century, okay? Right. There was a bunch of centuries before the first century, but we keep on calling it the first century because something explosive happened. And the, what the explosive thing is, if I didn't know anything from Scripture, I could reconstruct what that was just from the fuse and fallout of history. Mm-hmm. So in that fallout uh, section, because we covered a lot of the fuse last time, so in the fallout of the investigation, where can we see how Jesus... Jesus transformed our world in those remarkable ways. What's the evidence? So I'm looking at two things. Number one is that does he have outsized impact? Impact that makes sense only if he is who he said he was. In other words, he's either a fiction or he's a regular old sage in the first century or he is the God of the universe stepping back into his creation. So the question is, am I going to see the kind of impact that makes sense of number three? The only only can be explained if he is God stepping into his creation. So that's what I wanted to know. So impact was number one. But number two is, is his impact so dramatic and so unique that his story can be reconstructed from the impact? And I'm looking at those areas that were important to me as an atheist. Those are literature, art, music, education, and science. Those are the things Unbelievable. that I thought were the most important <laughs> as an atheist. Now, there's a sixth category, which is world religions every other theistic worldview. It turns out Jesus has had so much impact on literature, art, music, education, science, and world religions that his story can be reconstructed from those aspects of our culture even if every New Testament was destroyed. Mm. And that makes no sense at all unless, of course, he is who he said he was. Yeah. Uh, Let me ask you this. Um, You mentioned your father was a policeman and you went into the arts and into architecture. How did those disciplines help you as you kind of swerved back into follow-up behind your dad as a detective. My dad, you know, this is a noble profession. It's a calling, and before I even knew what a calling was, so I followed him into law enforcement. I was 27, and I can tell you that um, for a long time I struggled. I felt like I needed a creative outlet. I had no creative outlet. You know, I started a police band of, of officers playing <laughs> bands. We played music for a while, and, and then eventually, you know, because I was involved in architecture, I was constantly getting asked to draw the murder scenes before I was even assigned to homicide. Oh, interesting. So eventually, when I got to doing jury trials, I started to help the DA visualize this for jurors, which is why this fuse and fallout, that's a visual model we'll put on the screen for jurors to see how this works. That has always colored the way I look at these investigations. So here, I wanted to look at the arts because it turns out that from the arts alone, every episode of the Gospels has been painted by an ancient 
or sculpted or etched or drawn by an ancient so that the story of Jesus can be completely reconstructed from just the most ancient forms of art. Yeah. So you'd have to destroy more than the New Testament to get rid of the story of Jesus. You'd have to destroy many, many buildings and surfaces in which that image has been imaged. Jesus is the most imaged character in all historical figures. That fallout effect too, and you mentioned this and you're touching on it, all the arts, but also architecture. I mean, oh, you, you touched on that with yeah. the churches and what well, has been built. Well, you knew I was going to have to do that given yeah, I had an architectural background. So, so yeah, what but happens, talk about that. I mean, well, again, that fallout perspective, if Jesus never existed or he was a right. myth, man, you'd have to, the ripple effect that you mentioned at the top yeah. of the show. Well, you think about this, the arts needed a studio in which to develop, and, and many uh, Christians were artistically inspired. But if you think about how we first met in the adobe, or not adobe, but mud kind of constructed uh, small residential homes uh, in the Middle East, think about that. That was a dark, cool, it was cooler because, you know, it's a hot environment, but they were dark, small environments. We had a desire as a group to reflect the nature of Jesus, who's not described as the dark, right. he's described as the light. Yeah. We also had a desire to think about our salvation and the heavenly aspirations we have as a people group. And it turns out those two aspirations to reflect the light of Jesus and the heavenly aspirations of the gospel impacted the way we started to change our environments. So for example, dome architecture gets to be so dominant in Christian churches because we wanna look up and see the awesome heavens that have inspired us from the very beginning. And if you look at, say, for example, St. Peter's and Michelangelo's great dome there, you'll see that the engineering's feat to create some of these spaces is pretty remarkable. Yeah. But then we also needed to kind of make those walls lighter to allow light in. So the kind of Gothic movement in which the structure of churches is forced outward to allow for glass walls to come on the inside membrane, mm. well, that ends up creating spaces that are ridiculously beautiful. But what is the effort here? What's driving it is not just, hey, we want cool buildings. What's driving it is that we want to reflect the space that reflects the light Jesus as the light and our heavenly aspiration. It's about the Savior and salvation that drives the shaping of these spaces. And that drives an entire movement in architecture, and it continues to do that. Huh. Uh, but again, what is interesting of all the historical figures, who else has inspired more movements in the arts, literature, music, uh, education, and science than Jesus? If you think there's somebody else out there who's not only had the impact of inspiration, but also whose story can be reconstructed from this inspiration, tell me who that is. Jim, just to further that discussion on music, let's make sure we catch that. Because music is really interesting to me. Of course, Bach talked about the beauty, the orderliness of it, how it reflects God. I've heard others talk about it's a distinct attribute of human beings, that this is the creative source. This is what gives evidence that we're made in the image of God, that we're able to create music and enjoy music. Mm -hmm. It's a really interesting concept. Speak to Jesus's impact on music a well, little deeper. But, yeah, and think about that. that's a good point because we sing about the things we care about most deeply. We sing about what we worship. And it moves people. It does. And it turns out from the very beginning, the Christian worldview has been a singing worldview. I mean, huh. Jesus sings a, a hymn at the Last Supper, right? That hymn is often thought to be one of the Psalms of David. Just, we've been singing the Psalms of David for thousands of years, okay? As a matter of fact, if all you had was the 
music sung in hymn form of the first 300 years of the Common Era, you could reconstruct the entire story of Jesus uh. from just the songs we sing about him. Mm-hmm. It to destroy more than the New Testament, but also the history of early music in the Common Era. Now, what's interesting about that is that we think about where else in the world is there a worldview that puts singers on a stage every week singing in front of a live audience? That's called the church. Right. And we do this all the time. And so we have advanced the cause of music. So, you know, think about we have the words of the hymns and the words of the psalms, but wouldn't you like to know what the chords they were playing were? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you like to hear what the melody was? Well, it turns out the reason why you can hear a melody today is because a Christian invented musical notation. There was no musical notation, harmonies. We invented these things, major scales, minor scales. Most of the instruments you're playing today were created for the purpose of advancing music in the church. And so you, we contributed not just to some great music, but also to the history of music making in a way that is really unparalleled. And this is because Christians wanted to sing. As a matter of fact, I did a search of all of the pop music, we have an entire Christian music industry, of course, but, oh, yeah. but aside from the Christian music industry, there's the pop industry, the secular music industry. So I did a search of all the Rolling Stone database, the IMDb, the uh, Billboard magazine, like who are the top 100 artists in the last 150 years? Well, it turns out there's lists of these things. So I just took the entire list, I put them together. It's about 160 artists, I would say 150, 160 artists. And I wrote about this in the book. Well, I looked at their personal catalog. All but two of these secular artists have sung about Jesus of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. All not, but not two. Only, all but two. Now, the thing about that, that, this cannot be said of any other person who claimed deity or any other religious leader or any other historical figure. No one has sung about anyone as much as they've sung about Jesus in the oddest, strangest places. Frank Zappa's got a song, I think, called Jesus Thinks You're a Jerk. I think it's kind of a funny name. It's not a, <laughs> it's not a, a positive song. It's a negative song. I mean, mm. but the point is that it's a Jesus, reference. yeah, he's going to either infuriate you, inspire you, move you in some way, positively or negatively. You cannot get away from the influence of Jesus on music. Hmm. And so it's not just that, so I would say this, whatever you're listening to, if it's pop music, if it's country music, if it's hip hop, whatever it is, it's built on certain structural forms that are utterly dependent on Christians to invent them over the years so that today you have those structural forms in place so you can listen to the kind of music you like. Well, that's because Christians probably invented it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's go back a little bit to the intellectual debate. Uh, common misperception of Christianity is that Christians are ignorant, anti-intellectuals. You hear that certainly on social media today, mm-hmm. right? And you know, we're debating lots of things in that format. Uh, but what, what did your research show you about the intellectualism of Christians over time? So Jesus launches an, an intellectual worldview. I mean, he doesn't just say, go out and make converts. He says, I want you to go out and make disciples teaching them all that I taught you. Really? Well, what if they don't have any like written language? They can't read a, a scripture. Well, you're not to teach them how to read. Well, they don't even have an alphabet. I got to create an alphabet for them. So we inaugurated a worldview that causes us to hit the mission field as educators first. As a matter of fact, one of the most ancient books of all of Christendom after the Gospels is the Didache, the teaching of the 12 apostles to the nations. This is a instructional manual. It's very ancient, and it is used to catechize new believers before their baptism. One of the most foundational books, the earliest books that appears in history, ends up being a primer ends up being an educational manual. And then, of course, this launches a teaching worldview that explores and develops into the monasteries, into the cathedral schools, and then you have Bologna, 
Paris, and Oxford, the first truly modern universities established by the church. And these are the modern universities that gave birth to the universities that ultimately uh, it, it caused the scientific revolution. The scientists who came out and because of the scientific revolution graduated from those daughter universities. Right. But here's what I discovered. So if you just today want to send your kid to school and to a, the, one of the best, I want my son or daughter to go to one of the best universities in the world, well, do a search. Um, whatever database you're using, you're going to find that the top 15 universities in the world today were established by Christians. That shouldn't surprise you, though, because Christians have founded more universities, modern universities, than every other group combined. As a matter of fact, 75 of the top 100 universities were founded by Christians. Now, a lot of these folks may not worship Jesus on those campuses anymore. Today, right. Yes, but what they love to do is keep their most ancient buildings because it gives them some pedigree. And well, it turns out if you were to go to those campuses, the campuses of the top 15 universities in the world today, and you were to visit the campuses and look at their most ancient buildings, guess whose image likeness story is etched or painted, drawn, or it's in the stained glass on the oldest buildings. You can reconstruct the story of Jesus from just the campuses of the top 15 universities in the world. So if you want to eliminate Jesus from history, you can't just destroy the New Testament. You have to destroy those campuses because it turns out that's the kind of impact Jesus has had mm. in education. Wow. I mean, again, this evidence is it, sometimes, and I would think as a detective, you see this, simplifying something helps clarify something. And I, man, there's just so much busyness and hecticness in today's world that it's hard for us as modern people to just step back and look at the evidence mm -hmm. like this. Yeah, you know, it's I think so part, obvious. I think part of it is we're translators. You know, we, we call in expert witnesses and DNA and forensics and different material evidences, and they're going to come in, and they're such great experts, and they're so well trained. And persuasive. Yes, but they'll end up saying something that's a mystery to the jury. The jury's like, what did he just say? And we have to stop and re-question, re reframe the question. When you say this, do you mean, what do you really mean? Like, can you say it in words my jury can understand? Uh -huh. So a lot of what we are doing is translating. And sometimes when you're making a case for Christianity, you're just trying to stand on the shoulders of giants, but you're translating for them, mm -hmm. you know, because you know you have to. Sure. And that, again, it's a great uh, parallel. And that's what I love about your book. I mean, this idea of applying those things you learned as a homicide detective to the existence of Christ. I mean, it's really compelling. Yes, yes. Jim, when we look at all the great people in human history, kings, queens, conquerors, explorers, inventors, philosophers, you know, and everybody else, what is your conclusion about their impact on the world compared to the impact that Jesus had? Well, that's what's so remarkable about Jesus of Nazareth. It's really hard to explain because you know we're calling this the first century. And why are we calling it the first century? Well, you can, I just challenge you to look at every significant figure in history who lived in the first century and go from as far east as you can to as far west. It's hard to go beyond a couple. Yeah. Honestly, I, I made a list. I put them in the book because I think most of you will look at it and go, I don't know any of these people because right. they had no impact on history the way that this guy, this sage from this small part of the Roman Empire... This guy who really had, think about it. Three years. He, he lives in a small, he's born in a nowhere town, raised in another nowhere town, only moves about 200 miles from start to finish. He only has three years to accomplish his mission. The people who are religious reject. The people who are powerful are hunting him. Um, he, people who say they love him end up denying or betraying him in some way. He's got no real established family of merit, no education you can think of that would really cause this. No kids to extend his legacy, no wife, no, doesn't write a book, never leads a nation, never rules an army. This is the the guy who then eventually is falsely accused, brutally mocked, humiliated, executed, and they have to borrow a grave to bury him. Okay, this is the guy? 
Right? Is that the story you would write of a great conqueror? You would great not. King? This is so upside down in right. terms of what your expectations would be for someone like this. That if you take all of the leaders, and I, I just get beyond the first century, look at every historic, powerful leader in history. Ask yourself, who? has impacted literature, art, music, education, science, and world religion so deeply that his story can be reconstructed from those aspects of human culture. I'll wait, because you're not going to find anyone. It's Jesus of Nazareth. That, to me, is remarkably unexpected. But that's what would be true if he is who he said he was. Yeah. And Jim, I mean, we're coming in, maybe only a couple of questions left. And one I really wanted to cover, especially for the person who's watching or listening, that may be where you were at when you were 35, hard charging, criminal, you know, investigator, all that. What was the tipping point? I mean, what opened your eyes to spiritual things versus the facts and nothing but the facts? I always get asked that question, but see, here's what I do. In my cases, I'm working cumulative circumstantial cases. Now, that doesn't mean it's bad evidence. Circumstantial evidence is anything other than an eyewitness is called indirect evidence, circumstantial evidence. So even DNA is circumstantial. Fingerprints are circumstantial evidence. So I'm looking at cumulative cases. In other words, 80 things point to this guy. Yeah. It's this the weight. It's death by a thousand paper cuts, right? It is really that that one thing doesn't seem like much, but when you have 80 things pointing to this. So I get to a point examining what's in the New Testament and then all of this impact outside the New Testament where I finally said, okay, I, I trust that the New Testament is telling me something true about Jesus, but that does not make you a Christian. I mean, the devils believe something is true about Jesus, but you know the demons believe this, but it doesn't mean they're Christ followers. Correct. So I always say it this way. Um, that took me about nine months and there was no aha tipping point moment there, but I did get to the point where I told Susie, I said, I think this is telling me something true about Jesus, but I don't understand why God would have to die this way and come this way. Do you get that? And she's like, I don't get it either. So, okay, so here we are. We've already now vetted the New Testament. And I, I was examining it to see what it said about Jesus. What changed for me was when I started to read the New Testament to see what it said about me. Huh. That's when you start to have the aha moments. Right. Because it's reading through Romans, it's reading through First Corinthians, it's the spiritual man and the natural man, right? That no one has ever you know, really chases God. We all reject God. This is really what I realized that Paul was talking about me. That's when you start having aha moments. So if you will read, look, at some point I realized that that person he's describing who's in need of a savior, that describes me. Yeah. But because I'd already done the homework to know there was a savior, I was able to connect that dot pretty easily. Yeah. So what I would say is this, and I wrote about this years ago. I used to work um, homicides, and I also worked officer-involved shootings. And I had an officer-involved shooting one night where we come out and we interview the officer who got involved in the shooting. He stops a car for a drunk driving. He gets the drunk driver out. And the drunk driver actually ends up wanting to kill the officer because he's on parole, and he does not want the officer to discover he's got a gun in his waistband. Yeah. So as he gets this guy out of the car, he, the guy turns on the officer, and he's pointing the gun at the officer. He made a decision that night. He would rather kill the officer than go to jail. Right. The officer survived it, and he's now, I'm interviewing him, and he tells me that at that moment, he knew, I, what am I going to do? I mean, it was a millisecond. I could jump. I could try to, he just said, you know what? I knew I was wearing my bulletproof vest, and I had seen that vest stop bullets in the range because we shoot at them. <laughs> and so I knew that it was going to hurt, but if I could just tense up my, mu my muscles, I could take the first couple of rounds and get my gun out and return fire. So he stood there calmly and eventually survived the shooting. Right. 
Now, I want you to think about that for a second. That's pretty harrowing, okay, and pretty oh. courageous. But the reason why he was able to stand calmly in a difficult situation was because he already knew evidentially that that vest could stop the bullets. And if you know something is true evidentially, when you're in a tough spot, you will end up defaulting like muscle memory to what you know is evidentially true. And so I want my kids, as I raise them, I hope that they know that this is evidentially true. And you're going you're to have a tragedy. You're going to have a tough time. And you're going to be tempted to say, where's God in this? But if you know that this worldview can stop bullets, you will stand in the gunfight. And so I think we have to uh, help our kids to understand that this is not just my wishful thinking or one of many options that will make your life better. This is actually true, and it will stop bullets. That was quite a powerful analogy about our faith and our convictions. And uh, we so appreciate the unique perspectives that Jay Warner Wallace has brought us these past couple of episodes. On behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for joining us today for Focus on the Family. I'm John Fuller. I so appreciate the straightforward way that Jim shared about our faith today. We may have been raised in a Christian home and we may have had an experience, hopefully many, that demonstrated that Christianity is true. But more importantly, this is grounded in history. We're able to test our experience against what we can examine and know is true evidentially. It's evidence-based. It's history. I want to encourage you to listen to this broadcast again with your children. That's what I'm going to do with my girls. You'll find the program on our website or podcast, or you can download the Focus on the Family Africa app and have access to this program and many others to listen to at your convenience and share with others. So we encourage you to do that. You'll find it in the Apple and Google stores. Just be sure to search for Focus on the Family Africa. I also want to point you to a really helpful downloadable resource on our website that is also free of charge. It's called Coming Home, an invitation to join God's family. You'll find that on our website at safamily.co.za. Thanks for being with us today. I'm Graham Schnell for Focus on the Family Africa. I hope that you'll join us next time and we'll once again help you and your family thrive in Christ.